welcome to Checkpoint Now, the podcast at the intersection of immunotherapy and toxicities. This is your host, Dr. Fung Shui, endocrinologist, assistant professor of medicine, and an associate director at the Center of Cancer Immunotherapy at Duke Cancer Institute. And I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Tian Zhang. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Tian Zhang, genitourinary medical oncologist and assistant professor of medicine. We both practice at Duke University Hospital. Before we begin today's discussion, just a reminder that the content discussed in this podcast is not a substitute for direct professional medical care and diagnosis. The opinions expressed here represent our own. Today, we're joined by Dr. Javid Maslehi, who's a cardiologist at Vanderbilt University and expert in immune-mediated cardiotoxicities. Javid is Associate Professor of Medicine and the Director of Cardio-Oncology at Vanderbilt. Javid, can you tell us a bit about your interest in the intersection of cardiology and oncology? Hi, it's a real pleasure to be there and talk to you guys. Yes, I'm a cardiologist and my clinical practice is focused on this new area of cardio-oncology. And this, this area has really blossomed over the last decade because of the success oncologists have had in terms of treating patients successfully with a number of new therapies for their cancers. These patients live longer, which means they may have cardiac issues and the cardiac issues become relevant. But also some of these drugs can have adverse effects on the heart. So that's one area that's really made this field blossom. The fact that there are many therapies out there that make the patients live longer and that some of these therapies have effects on the heart. Wonderful. I can't agree with you more. Let's get right into this as we have a lot to cover. How commonly do you see immune-mediated myocarditis or pericarditis after patients receive immune checkpoint inhibitors? So there, it's it, this specific uh, incidence of myocarditis, pericarditis is really hard to say. Some of our early data suggested a lower percentage, like less than 1% that where we see this effect. Although our more recent data, especially when you combine therapies, the percent risk is somewhere around 1% for myocarditis. With respect to what type of uh, cardiovascular immune-mediated effects you have, with, we're seeing some differences in cancers where, for example, in lung cancer, we see, new, see more pericarditis. But I would say if you're doing combination treatment, it's around 1% where we see effects and that the patients present with obvious symptoms of myocarditis or pericarditis. That's very interesting, Javi. Um, is there a difference between the association of cardiac toxicities between PD-1, L1 inhibitors and CTLA-4 inhibitors? Yes. So we had a paper in Lancet Oncology a couple of years ago where we looked at the different cardiovascular profiles. Myocarditis and uh, uh, Pericarditis appeared to be more PD-1 or PD-L1 mediated, mm-hmm. whereas vasculitis seems to be more CTLA-4 inhibitor mediated. But I think some of that also has may have to do with the prototype of the patient and the cancer type that they have and what they were treated. But at least from that paper, it looks like there's some differential increase incidence depending on the type of drug that you use. That's very interesting, Javed. Um, what are the most common presenting symptoms of immune-mediated myocarditis? The problem is myocarditis and many cardiac diseases present the same way. Patients is fatigued. They may have shortness of breath. They may have chest pain. But that's truly what we see with many cardiac diseases. And I think one of the challenges has been 
being able to decipher what the patient's presenting as and whether that's myocarditis, because the symptom symptoms that the patient presents with are usually generally the same. They're fatigued, they're short of breath, they're, uh, they may have chest pain, and those are the challenges. That's also the type of symptoms that we see with many cardiac issues. You, you still don't have things down to a myocarditis. And I would say the diagnosis is probably a big part of this as we move forward, diagnosing appropriately and promptly the myocarditis versus other cardiac issues. Sure. And along with that, how do we go about this diagnosis? Um, what kind of laboratory workup would you usually obtain when patients are presenting in either the clinic or the hospital? Yeah. So great question. So we had a paper a year ago where we at least tried to think of what are the different tools you need. This is a paper that we published in circulation. Mark Benaka is the first author. What are the tools that you need for diagnosis? And we actually brought in a lot of experts and cardiology experts uh, to try to figure this out. The truth is you need a combat. There's no one simple test that tells you this is myocarditis or not, and that you need a combination of tests to try to figure this out. This includes laboratory workup, which includes uh, measuring things like troponin and B or BNP. This may include imaging, and in many cases, that may include a cardiac MRI. I can expand further on that. But in many times, it may also necessitate an endomyocardial biopsy, which obviously is invasive. So there's no simple thing. Usually, we need a combination of all three to be able to diagnose this promptly and appropriately. That's really helpful. And can you talk a little bit about the imaging exactly? You know, should we get echocardiograms or yeah. a cardiac MRI? So the easiest test to get at any given point in cardiology is an echocardiogram. Unfortunately, what we have learned is 50% of the patients have a fairly normal echocardiogram with the ejection fraction, which is a me measure of the heart squeeze is not abnormal. That's 50% of the patients presenting with myocarditis. So it's not a great test in that sense. Having said that, that's probably the most appropriate test you can get right away. I should actually mention the other test that anybody should get and everybody should get this right away is an EKG. Obviously, anybody can do it, but that's neither sensitive or specific for myocarditis, but it kind of gives you an idea of the differentials you may be looking at. We think cardiac MRI may be helpful, but it also depends now on what what type of parameters you look at with the cardiac MRI. There was a nice study by one of my colleagues, Dr. Tom Nealon, who's at Mass General, where he showed earlier this year that the usual run-of-the-mill MRI platforms that we use may not be helpful. And he has examples of patients who have the biopsy, which pushes positive, and ends up the imaging is not, uh, the MRI is not uh, positive. So it's just, it's just, so uh, not only is the type of imaging difficult, especially with cardiac MRI, and especially since some of the patients just simply can't get an MRI on, uh, but I think the other challenge is MRI doesn't appear to be a perfect test. And I think one thing that we are interested in is being able to use novel PET tracers to appropriately uh, diagnose myocarditis. And that's something that we're working on in the lab currently as we speak. So we clearly need more appropriate imaging tools because what we have now, while useful in some cases, is not, uh, are not perfect answers with diagnosis. 
That's really helpful, Javi, especially the part that you mentioned about using multiple modes of diagnostic testing and correlating that with the patient's clinical presentation. Um, You mentioned about a biopsy and that being more sensitive than in cases where a cardiac MRI may not be as sensitive. Can you tell us which patients we should pick for or which patients you would consider doing a biopsy and how helpful these are? Yeah, so I think it really comes down to each case and also each center. Obviously, if you're at a center that can't do biopsies like Memorial Sloan Kettering, they don't have a biopsy. There's no way to do a biopsy, even though it's a tertiary care center. You have to then ship the patient, send the patient out to get the biopsy. So it partly depends on how easy it is to get a biopsy at that specific place. The other problem is that, unfortunately, many cases, the troponin may be positive. The echocardiogram may be not diagnostic, so you're still sort of stuck. And I would say those are the patients that you specifically want to get the biopsy because the appropriate diagnosis of myocarditis has implications for the patient getting treatments for the myocarditis. And if the patient looks okay in a week, whether you can re-challenge them with the checkpoint inhibitor. That's um, very helpful, Javi. From what I've learned is that myocarditis and pericarditis in these patients typically presents in very symptomatic presentations where often steroids are considered early on or very abruptly in the management. Do these steroids affect biopsy results? Um, Should we be thinking about them differently down the line? Uh, I I don't think we have data where the steroids affect the biopsy. In fact, we have anecdotally, we have a number of cases where patients were treated for some time. What I don't think we should think about is if you think somebody has myocarditis to hold off on steroids until you get a diagnosis. I think the key is to get prompt uh, prompt, uh, appropriate uh, use of the steroids and give it quickly. One of my colleagues, again, Tom Nealon at Mass General, has, again, some very nice data where appropriate high-dose and prompt steroids may have beneficial effects, although that's a retrospective study. Great. All of this is really informative for our practice. One question that I always have in the outpatient setting is, when should our patients, you know, when should we consider hospitalization for our patients and which patients can actually have their care coordinated more as an outpatient? So I would always say if the patient has symptoms and you are suspecting myocarditis, you need to hospitalize that patient. I think that should be the take-home message. Uh, If the threshold, if you're not thinking myocarditis, if you're just saying this, uh, thinking the patient may have something, it's very nonspecific, then I would, uh, I would, uh, then you can, I think you may be better not hospitalizing. But if you're suspecting myocarditis and or if the patient has symptoms that you can't quite decipher, I would hospitalize the patient where you can get tests done quickly and also carefully monitor the patient. Well, that's very useful, Javed, for, you know, everyone's practice. Now, you mentioned about, you know, using your clinical judgment and determining whether a patient needs inpatient versus outpatient management. As we're taking care of these patients, what difference in interventions should oncologists expect with each of these approaches? Uh, each of the approaches, meaning uh, whether you do inpatient or outpatient or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think it's, 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 it's not helpful to ask an oncologist or not appropriate to take care of them, try to diagnose the myocarditis. I really think getting cardiology colleagues on board early, uh, having the appropriate consultative service with them, 
is very helpful. That may happen in the emergency room with the cardiologist consultation occurring then. But it's really hard. I would not expect an oncologist to be able to uh, measure and interpret the biomarker results, measure and or order and interpret the results of the MRI or the uh, uh, echocardiogram or order a biopsy. I think it's really, uh, this really called for the uh, appropriate use of team medicine. And I think getting colleagues on board early, if you're suspecting of myocarditis, can be very helpful. I agree with that. And thanks for your insight and management of these um, very challenging patients. I'm sure you're asked this often, but what's the long-term prognosis for patients with myocarditis? Do they ever completely recover back to baseline? Yeah, so as we have learned over the last couple of years, there's different forms of myocarditis in this space. So some patients may have very slight bump in troponin and still have a positive biopsy, but barely any symptoms, and the troponin increase is very small. Some people just have an asymptomatic increase in troponin. So I'm afraid the types of myocarditis we see, we've been focusing a lot on the fulminant cases that present with clear symptoms and are very sick. But I think there may be a whole spectrum of myocardial damage that we're seeing with these patients. And so, in fact, one of the goals of our group uh, with Doug Johnson, who's a melanoma specialist, and Brian Reaney, we're looking at what the long-term prognosis is of some of the patients who may have an, uh, a biomarker evidence of cardiac damage, but no real symptoms. Again, how these patients do over time has become more relevant. Have been, as oncologists have been so successful in, in terms of treating the, some of these cancers. So I think that's something for us to find out over the next couple of years. We certainly do have many patients on these treatments for you know years at a time, and um, I'm so glad you're working in a multidisciplinary fashion um, with our colleagues um, at Vanderbilt. Uh, what can oncologists do better than when diagnosing and helping to manage immune-mediated myocarditis? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think the biggest thing is a low threshold for considering myocarditis as part of the differential. I think that would be the most appropriate thing, I would say. Uh, I think engaging cardiology colleagues early and having cardiologists that you can call for help, I think that would be also helpful. Again, the idea of team science or team medicine in this case. I think we as a group need to work better to understand the pathophysiology and also be able to diagnose this quickly, uh, more promptly, using possibly new tools. And then the truth is, even with steroids, a lot of patients are still not doing well for the fulminant cases. And I think we have to think a little more creatively about, about other therapies that may, we may bring to the picture. Javed, so helpful. Um, we talked quite a bit about myocarditis. What other cardiac toxicities can these patients develop? So you can have any number of toxicities that come in. Mike Pasta has from Memorial Sloan Kettering got a nice paper uh, a few years ago where every organ is basically marked. So you can effectively have any sort of itis. Now, what we see generally tracked with myocarditis appears to be myositis, so skeletal muscle issues. And for that reason, I think a CK should be in the biomarker check that we do. We, we've also found out that some of the more severe cases 
have a myasthenia gravis like syndrome. And I say like because we're not sure it's exactly my, uh, myasthenia gravis, but at least the symptoms are very similar. At least from where we sit, those seem to be the most two common itises that go along with severe myocarditis. Well, that's really great to know, Javed. I get asked this often about um, for endocrine toxicities on when is it a good time to rechallenge with immunotherapy after they develop a toxicity? What are your thoughts on rechallenging after a cardiac toxicity? Is there any data to suggest changing the agent after a patient develops a cardiac toxicity? So unfortunately, we really don't have any data. There have been some papers published that are mostly a series, but I'm not sure we have an answer one way or another. I would say if you have a severe myocarditis, I think it would, and you kind of recover from it, uh, then I would not rechallenge. I would certainly look at other agents that the patient may be possibly, uh, maybe at the, uh, you can use on the patient. I would also say one thing we have done, and again, we have no data on it. There's some cases where we may give a combination treatment. But if they have myocarditis, we may challenge with just the PD-1 or CTLA-4 inhibitor alone rather than with both agents combined. Because clearly combination therapy is the one single major risk that we see with respect to myocarditis developing in these patients. Well, that's very helpful. Javid, can you share with us about an interesting case you encountered, something that really made you think through? Yeah, so we have had a number of cases. I think one issue that's come up with kidney cancer is use a combination of a VEGF inhibitor and a checkpoint inhibitor. And the patient, again, comes with chest pain, shortness of breath. The echo shows up some abnormalities. But again, it's unclear which agent is what's driving the case. I will also share another case of breast cancer patients with triple negative breast cancer where they have gotten very toxic therapies like anthracyclines and now getting a checkpoint inhibitor. Now, and you see some changes on the echocardiogram. And you don't know whether that's the, echo, uh, the anthracycline from before or a new thing from the myocarditis. Uh, so I think that as we have started to use more combination therapies with other types of cancers, where the other drugs may have cardiovascular sequelae, it's been, become particularly tough to say well, which patients uh, uh, has the toxicity and which patients, which drug is it related to? I think that's been one of the sort of the most more challenging cases we've seen over the last year. The other issue is the patient may have concomitant heart disease. So we've had many 70-year-olds who come in with a troponin increase and maybe some shortness of breath where my cardiology colleagues not knowing which, what, which drug is what, what in the oncology space and not thinking at all about myocarditis, simply send the patient to the cath lab and they do a, put a stent on a patient. Now, in some of the cases we have seen, the patient probably had the blockage for years and it was never causing a trouble. And now they have a stent for something that they didn't need and the myocarditis diagnosis gets missed. So I think education of our my cardiology colleagues to know which drugs are which, which are the checkpoint inhibitors. Because again, I would I'm willing to bet if you went around at Duke or somewhere else or Vanderbilt and picked any random cardiologist and ask them what ipilimumab is, they would have no idea it's a checkpoint inhibitor. 
Um, that's, um, I, I think that your points about combinations, treatments, and trying to tease apart which drug is responsible for what toxicity and also the underlying uh, cardiac history and understanding these drugs are all very well taken. Actually, I want to change gears just a little bit. Um, and uh, you recently published a real paper in Cancer Discovery describing an uh, interesting mouse model with Jim Allison's group to actually study immune-mediated myocarditis. Um, can you tell us about that mouse model and what your early findings were? Sure. We have developed a couple of different models. One is a pharmacologically treated mice, but this nice model with my at Jim Allison, where the genes for CTLA-4 and PD-1 are knocked out globally. And what we found is a subset of the haploinsufficient CTLA-4 knockout mice in a PD-1 knockout background which at least in my simple mind, it's sort of a replication of combination treatment. A subset of those mice just drop dead. They just, something happens. And we found out that the main reason is actually myocarditis. And we've done a lot of work to try to convince ourselves that this recapitulates much of what we see with myocarditis. So this is rhythmogenic, much like the human version of the disease. And there's no, as many echocardiograms on the mice now are normal. Uh, and so in many ways, this phenocopy is what we see in patients. We use this mouse to then, we've used this mouse to really think about uh, what are the, what's the pathophysiology, what's the pathogenesis, are the immune cells important in this form of myocarditis? So those are all ongoing things, experiments that we're doing. We're also... You can then use a preclinical model as well to think about treatment strategies. And so, and so one of the things that we are doing is uh, using the model, we were able to show that an agent called Abatacept, which is a CTLA4IG, at least in the mouse model, can rescue the phenotype. And we have at least a group of patients that we've successfully treated with Abatacept. Obviously, this is a space that will need, will need a clinical trial to really tell whether this is truly the thing we should reach out to in patients. And then more importantly, what are the effects on the tumor? So I would just say that the mouse model, not only does it help us probably think about the pathophysiology and the mechanisms of disease process better, but it may at least present a model where novel therapies could be tested in. Those are very exciting and interesting findings, and we're really excited to see what comes out of your lab. We hear that there are some new developments and observations from the lab that you are publishing soon. Can you share a highlight with our audience? So there are a couple of interesting things. So one is, uh, again, using the mice, we've been able to think a little more creatively about better diagnostic techniques. And one area we've been very excited about is all the advancements with immunopet tracers, novel immunopet tracers. And I think we are very excited about applying this to the mice to see whether that can present a novel way of diagnosing, at least in mice, the myocarditis quickly. The other thing, as a biologist, which is what I am, and as a cardiologist, uh, I think the, the clinical observation that patients can have checkpoint inhibitor-associated myocarditis uh, and that the PD-1 and CTLA-4 are important has really opened up the whole space of what is the intrinsic role of PD-1 or CTLA-4 in the heart? Forget about the cancer patients or the checkpoint inhibitor-treated patients. 
what, what is the biological role in the heart whereby perturbation leads to disease? And one area we've been very excited about is other forms of inflammatory heart disease, such as a cardiac transplant rejection. Again, nothing to do with immune checkpoint inhibitors, where we think we have the, we can see upregulation of PDL1 in the patients who get rejection. And so we are now wondering whether this could be a marker that can be used to more quickly, the PDL1, to more quickly and appropriately select for patients who may have rejection after going through a transplant. So these are some of the areas that we're working on very hard. Well, Javed, thanks so much for sharing all those new and upcoming uh, developments in your lab. And thank you so much for joining us today and taking the time out to discuss your insights in cardiac toxicities from immune checkpoint inhibitors. We really found this very informative. I'm sure our audience has learned something new today as well. Do you have any last parting thoughts to share with us? Yeah, so I think one of the, again, the themes I'm going to go back to is team medicine and team science. I think it's really important. You cardiologists are usually in their own cath labs or EP labs doing or in the echo lab doing their thing. But I think your success as oncologists treating these patients has really allowed this nice interaction between cardiologists and oncologists. And as I'm here looking here, looking at Efreen and uh, realizing she's an endocrinologist, has really created really discussion among different disciplines within an internal medicine department. So I, I really am really uh, looking forward to these interactions because every time I've talked to an oncologist, I learned something new. And every time I talk to an endocrinologist, I think something new. This is not the type of thing where one person is going to fix it all. It really, really needs a team effort. I couldn't agree more, Javid, with this. And the multidisciplinary care is just the most amazing aspect of what has brought all of us together with the, the, uh, the increasing use of immunotherapy. Thank you, Tian and Afrin. Really nice working with you on this. I, again, we've been sort of interacting a bunch over the time, but I, I think it's really good that you're doing this. Javid, I think you hit the nail on the head. Certainly, it's been a recurrent theme in this podcast series of providing multidisciplinary care for our patients. And certainly, these checkpoint inhibitor-induced toxicities need that expert-level care from all of the subspecialties. So thank you so much again, and we really appreciate your time joining us today. For our audience, please remember to tune in again in two weeks. You can reach us at checkpointnowpodcast at gmail.com. And please also remember to follow us on Twitter at checkpointnowmv.